Luke chapter 21, we have gotten to verse 11, beginning in verse 5. Some spake of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts. And Jesus said, as for these things which you behold, the days will come, in the which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. They, of course, astounded with that, asked him, saying, Master, When shall these things be, and what sign will there be when these things shall come to pass? And he said, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass. But the end is not yet, or by and by. Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, and famines, and pestilences, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now, it picks up in verse 25 where it says, and there shall be signs in the sun, and the moon, and in the stars, keeping in keeping with this idea of signs in the heavens verse 12 begins a parenthesis that we only have in luke's gospel and we'll look at it together and uh, it's only in luke's gospel where jesus warns in regards to the persecution and trouble that would take place prior to 70 a.d and we'll look at that together and jesus says this verse 12 but before All of these things, they shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. It'll be an opportunity. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts not to meditate beforehand what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. You shall be betrayed both by parents, brethren, kinsfolk, and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but there shall not a hair of your head perish in your patience possess ye your souls. He begins to talk to them about a persecution they would face, and he gives them some pointers. Now, uh, important for us as we hear Jesus talk about persecution and his care for believers during a time like that. You know, in America, we feel very removed from that. Last year, when there were testimonies before our Congress about Christians that are being persecuted in other countries, about Christians that are being crucified in the Sudan today. And I'm sure you've heard James Dobson talking about persecution globally, things that are going on. The testimony before Congress last year said more Christians have been martyred in this century than in the last 1900 years combined. More Christians have been martyred in this century than in the entire history of the church. Now see, that seems far removed from us. When we hear, when Jesus talks about trouble and persecutions in the last days, it seems like, well, things got to get worse. Well, to most of the world, they don't think this evening things got to get worse. They think things can only get better. 
William Brady, in his book, Behind the Iron Curtain, says in this century alone there have been 15 million Christians martyred in Russia alone. So there are many who greatly appreciated these words, and I'm sure that they thought of them as they were being hailed in front of a judge or an executioner or or a prison guard or a warden, remembering that Jesus said, you know, in the very hour that you need the words, I'm going to give them to you. I'm going to give you the grace you need in the moment that you need it. No, we know he does that. He's faithful. We think, of course, of Peter on the day of Pentecost, how he stood up. And 3,000 souls were saved as he preached the gospel. We think of him in chapter 4, again, when he's brought before the Sanhedrin and the religious rulers, which were the very men that he had denied Christ before previously. Remember, he said uh, that night when Jesus was taken from the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to the home of the religious rulers, they asked Peter, aren't you one of his disciples? And three times he denied the Lord. You remember that? Well, Jesus clearly told them, when they bring you in the synagogues on the magistrates, this is chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, and powers, take ye no thought, same idea, what thing you shall answer, what thing you shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what you ought to say. Very interesting, in Acts chapter 4, when Peter is brought before those religious rulers, it says, Peter, being filled with the Holy Ghost stands up and delivers one of the most incredible messages you'll read in all of the New Testament. The same man who had cowered in front of them in the Gospels and denied Christ, now filled with the Holy Spirit, gives great testimony to Christ. The same Lord, yesterday, today, and forever, the same promise to us that he will give us what we need when we need it. We see Stephen In Acts chapter 7, it says that his face was glowing like an angel. And it says he was, Stephen, being filled with the Holy Spirit, it says, that they actually held their ears. They couldn't understand. Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God, Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried with a loud voice and they stopped up their ears and they ran on him in one accord and they stoned him. Stephen in that very hour. We see Paul before Agrippa giving such a clear testimony that Agrippa says to Paul, Paul, you're almost converting me. You're trying to make me a Christian. I know what you're doing. So much conviction in his own heart. And of course, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul there talking about his hearing before Nero, said, everyone forsook me. He said, but the Lord Jesus was with me. At my first hearing before Caesar, no man stood with me. All men forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge, notwithstanding the Lord stood with me And strengthen me that by me the preaching might be fully known and that all Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. So Paul says the Lord was with him. The very promise that we're reading. Now, I think that's important to us because, you know what? As we look at friends and relatives, you know, I know that uh, in your life there are people that you love very much and you've been sharing the Lord with them. And, you know, sometimes you get a bad time from them. They get tired. You know, they, like these guys in the book of Acts, they just want to stop up their ears and run at you and stone you, you know. They just want you to shut up and leave them alone. 
And I am convinced that more than ever, what we need is what Jesus said, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't care what your theology is on the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying that we need what the apostles needed. Fine, put baptism wherever you want it, put filled wherever you want it. We need the Holy Spirit. We need his empowering. We need to be filled. When we give a testimony to relatives and people that we love, are we praying beforehand and saying, Lord, fill me with your spirit because I've said these words a thousand times. Reading a, uh, the life story of Moody and it says when after huge successful ministry and, and then a greater filling with the Holy Spirit and it says he said the same things he had always said but there was such power and such unction that people, millions, were giving their lives to Christ. And I think how desperately we need that same thing. And Jesus is promising That even when there's hostility towards the things we believe and that we want to say, that we can depend on him. And even then against all odds, when we think people won't listen to us, that he'll give us the words to say in that very hour that no one will be able to gainsay or stand against. I think it's great encouragement as I look at this and I think about persecution. Because that promise is to us also. This troubles me a little bit. Verse 16. You shall be betrayed by both parents, brethren, kinsfolk, friends. Some of you they shall cause to be put to death. You shall be hated of all for my name's sake. But there shall not a hair of your head perish. Those two are hard for me to put together. Some of you they they shall put to death, but not a hair of your head shall perish. I'm not going to worry about that after they put me to death. I know some of us are worried about that now. A few hairs have perished. And in another place, he, sa- he says, don't fear those who can merely kill the body. I think that's what he's talking about. Even if we lay down our life for Christ, not a single hair of our head will perish. In fact, in the resurrection, ones that have already gone, I think, will be back. <laughs> 19, in your patience, possess you your souls. And enduring, speaking to those who will face this persecution coming on Jerusalem. Because he says it in verse 20. When you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, surrounded with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let them which are in the midst of it depart out. Let not them which are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive unto all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That gives us a key to the passage. He begins this passage by saying, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, he ends the passage by saying, then you shall be driven out amongst all of the nations of the world. That gives us the context. Matthew chapter 24 says something very similar. Only he says this, when you shall see the desolation of abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then let the reader understand, let those that are in Judea flee to the mountains, pray your flights not on the Sabbath, you know, woe to those. But it says nothing about worldwide dispersion at that point in time. This is something different. This is not the Antichrist. This is when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, 70 AD. Then let them flee. Early church historians tell us that the Christians took this warning to heart. 
and they fled out the east gate one night and by chance, that's not a biblical word, Uh, rabbis say coincidence is not a kosher word. Coincidentally, the Roman guards were not at that gate and they fled to an area called Pella, not Petra, Pella, east of Jerusalem, still within the borders of Israel, and survived the siege of Jerusalem. Many Christians warned by this passage fled. Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Titus Vespasian, the Roman legions. And at the end of this siege, it says, they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. That is the diaspora. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles, that's been for the last 1900 years, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Now, again, take notice, there is another warning. And I believe written to those that will be alive during the tribulation period. When you see the desolation of abomination spoken of by Daniel the prophet speaking of the Antichrist. We know that Israel's rebirth is necessary because it tells us that he will exalt himself above all that is called God. And that he will go into the temple and seat himself in the temple in Jerusalem. So it's very interesting for us to watch the news today and see the news centering around Israel. Very interesting for us to see articles written everywhere about those who want to rebuild a temple in Israel. Very interesting for us to watch the tensions in the Middle East today and know that some world leader will soon come on the scene. Maybe he's alive this evening. And the Bible tells us clearly that he will come on the scene as an orator, as a political genius. And that when he comes on the scene, he will sign a seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel. I get the feeling when I read that. And by the way, it says he shall confirm a covenant. It could be the Oslo Accord. I don't know. He's going to come on the scene and confirm a covenant for seven years with the nation of Israel. That tells me that we are looking for some shaking to take place, a limited nuclear exchange. Something is going to happen to shake the world because this evening it would be an impossibility to sign a seven-year treaty with the nation of Israel guaranteeing them peace for seven years. Could never happen. With Islam, with the tensions in the Middle East tonight, something will happen that will shake the world and and make the civilized world clamor for peace. And this man at that point in time will arise on the scene, stabilize the oil, the oil cartel, and sign a seven-year peace treaty with the nation of Israel. Now, it's very interesting because as we've been reading through these passages, signs and wonders, nation against nation, famine, pestilence, earthquake, deception, all of those things seem to be restrained and under God's governing, not let fully go. But it tells us in 2 Thessalonians there's a point coming when the Holy Spirit will stop restraining all of those things and they will be allowed to to move forward with full force. So then it will no longer be look out for deception and false Christ. Then you will have the false Christ coming on the scene as restraint has come to an end. Then it will never, it won't be just wars and rumors of wars. Revelation 6 then shows us after the white horse, the red horse riding forward and war goes forth and it tells us in one hour, one fourth of the 
Earth's population is going to be wiped out. That's in one hour, every human being in South America, Central America, Mexico, the United States, Canada, and Europe, gone in one hour. If you can imagine that. And then pestilence comes forth, which always follows war and disease. Right now, what we're seeing are the restrained versions of all of that. Then this antichrist, this person who's deceived the world, it says it's going to require that everybody on earth receives a mark on the back of the right hand or their forehead, and without it, they won't be able to buy or sell or get a job. Now that sounded far-fetched for years, I know. But the technology is in place. Is it the technology that Revelation 13 is speaking of? I don't know that. I don't know that. Time Magazine, and this is uh, April 27th, this spring, 1998. There's an article in here. It's called The Future of Money. And it talks about electronic funds transfer, uh, cash, credit cards, ATM cards, ID cards, insurance cards, about one card, hopefully a smart card that does all of this. And it says, it says, the old-fashioned checking accounts will be done away with. It says your daughter can store money any way she wants, on her laptop, on a debit card, or even, in the not-too-distant future, on a chip implanted under her skin. Well, this is Time Magazine, this spring. I was out with someone from Washington several weeks ago. Told me in the Panama invasion... A number of American soldiers, and I don't know whether it was a division or a company, they took chips and implanted them under their eyebrow because they knew that was the most visible place where they could see them, and they watched them in battle by satellite. They could see every man. They could see where he was. If he was wounded, it was thermally sensitive, losing blood, cooling. They could see they had a man wounded from satellite. They knew every man's name. When a prisoner of war was taken somewhere, they couldn't hide him because they knew where he was. This is Panama. You know how long ago that was. And this was a man who was involved with the technology. All of that is in place. Now, I'm saying this mainly for those of you here who don't know Christ. Christ who maybe have been drugged here tonight by a friend, he's promised you to take you out for a steak dinner afterwards, and you're thinking, I can't, my, my mouth's watering, I can't wait till this screwball finishes. Well, you know, I just want to tell you, you know, call this person the screwball in Time Magazine, you know, the, the, the te- technology is there. For you believers, we are not watching for the Antichrist, we are watching for Jesus Christ. And the question for us is, as we see this technology in place, what is it doing to us? I mean, you know, Time Magazine, that's speaking kind of loud to me. You know, not Time Magazine itself, but the Lord, you know, the Spirit saying, you know, to look, to watch, to be vigilant, to be sober, to see these things, to take note of them, to put a scenario together in your heart and mind. And we can differ in our eschatological perspectives. But I don't think that the Holy Spirit will allow us to differ as we sense the urgency of the hour that we live in, as we see the darkness that surrounds us, as we see the difficulty in the world that we live in. 
If the Lord doesn't come for a hundred years, we still are closer to the coming of the Lord than any generation in the church that's ever walked this earth. So these things are more important to us than any generation of the church that's ever lived. Remarkably, he says here, Israel would be carried away into all of the nations of the world. Jerusalem would be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles, only time that phrase is used in the Bible. In Romans, there's a similar passage that talks about the fullness of the Gentiles. I don't know if there's a difference. Until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until... The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, I'm not sure what that means. In June of 1967, Israel took back Jerusalem. In, in 1948, they become a nation again. Never happened. You don't know any Babylonians. A people going for 2,000 years are reborn in their own land against all odds. I was in a pathmark in Northeast Philadelphia. And over the radio in that path, Mark, and it was in a Jewish neighborhood, the announcement came in June of 1967. The Israeli army is in possession of Jerusalem and the Western Wall. People began to weep all over. That is miraculous. Where are we living now? In a semicolon? In a comma? Is the, is the times of the Gentiles fulfilled or is it just a precursor to let us know how close it is? I guarantee you, no matter what happens in the rest of the world, our attention will always come back to Jerusalem. It is a rocky hill. I've been there 14 times. There is no gold, there is no silver, there is no oil, there's no natural resources on that hill in that country. The diamond-cutting capital of the world, but they import the diamonds from everywhere else. There's no diamonds in Israel, no diamond mines. And that rocky hill, 2,500 foot above sea level, Friday is the Muslims' holy day, Saturday is the Jews' holy day, and Sunday is the Christians' holy day. Everybody wants that rocky hill, and there ain't nothing there but conviction in men's hearts. And you can't negotiate that. You can negotiate nuclear arms. You can negotiate weapons. You cannot negotiate Jesus Christ, Yahweh, and Allah. It will never happen. And it will be the stumbling block, Zechariah says, Jerusalem of all of the nations of the world. How incredible to see it again in the center of the news in the days that we live in. Trodden down of the Gentiles until. Makes me wonder where we live today. The times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now verse 25 then picks up from verse 11 and gives us the context. When we see Jerusalem again, when we see it's no longer trodden down of the Gentiles under Jewish control, there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves Roaring, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. See, we're picking up from verse 11 where it says, great signs shall there be from heaven. Fearful sights. What is it talking about? I don't know. Asteroids. It's in the movies now, isn't it? Doesn't it seem funny that they make fun of everything that's coming? Can you see Satan desensitizing the people in this world? 
turning Armageddon into a, you know, an R-rated movie or a PG-13 movie instead of a reality. Sudden impact or whatever it was called, turning that into a movie instead of a reality. We think of the, the crater at Winslow, Arizona, where a meteor hit the earth 557 feet deep and 4,100 foot wide with the force of many nuclear blasts. We think of the one in Siberia that we hardly know about, but we saw the forest flatten for miles. They say that if a meteor 10 miles wide hit the earth, it would be 10 times all the nuclear weapons on earth, the detonating power of that hitting the earth. We would go immediately into a nuclear winter, a night, a nuclear night for 10 years, for a decade. And of course, we have these plans. If we see an asteroid or meteor coming, we're going to send up a nuclear missile and blow it apart. And, you know, they're working on these plans. The problem is the last big one, they didn't see till it went by. See, the trick is you have to see them coming or you can't, no sense shooting them after they shot you. As for me in my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to trust him. Not the guys who can shoot down meteors. Signs in the heavens. Solar flares. They're talking about power going out all over, that there's a series of solar flares coming in. I don't know. UFOs. I'm not interested. Space food. Space travel. I think they're deceptive. I don't know. I don't know if that's part of it, but don't you believe it? Man is the pinnacle of God's creation. There ain't nobody smarter flying around in some ship somewhere. We were created in God's image and likeness. All of the creation was put in dominion to man. And if they show up, you just plead the blood of Jesus on them and they'll, they'll get out of your backyard because that's where they come from. I don't know what it means. Signs in the heavens. Deception. I know that it says in Revelation 13 that the false prophet and the Antichrist are going to call down fire from heaven. I know that it says the two prophets that are seated outside of Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 11 will call down fire from heaven. There'll be no rain. Shut up the heavens in regards to rain. I know that it tells us in Revelation chapter 16 that there will be 90 pound hailstones falling. Now some argue whether that's a, a Greek measure or a Hebrew measure. One is 110 pounds, one is 90 pounds. You get hit with one of those babies, you won't care. You know, it is interesting that after in the Bikini Islands, our nuclear tests, we, plant, we put ships at certain, took ships out of mothballs that we're no longer using and put them at certain distances away from those explosions in the Bikini Islands to see what kind of damage would happen to them in the open sea. And the ships that were further away, they found huge dents all over the decks of the ship, like somebody with a huge ball-peen hammer had worked them over. And they realized that when that mushroom went up to the stratosphere that it produced hailstones over 100 pounds of what they call space ice fell on those ships. I don't know. It's fine with me. New improved or the old classic. I'm, I'm, I'm planning on watching this from the mezzanine.
Verse 25, signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, upon the earth, distress of nations. Now, we don't have to look real far for that. With perplexity, which means distress simply means to be under pressure or to be compressed. Speaking simply of stress of nations. With perplexity is a, is a Greek word that means unable to squeeze through a, a narrow place. No way out, some translate it. Or national problems without solutions is what it's saying here. Nations in perplexity. That we've become, you know, we're in gridlock. That, that globally nations will find themselves in gridlock. Or, you know, when a human being dies in a hospital, they say sometimes, well, that person died of complications. Well, that's what it's saying about the political world, that it will, complications will start to shut, you know, you know first the lungs go, the kidneys go, it can't pass urine, the, the breath is lessening, the heart is straining. That's the idea. Perplexity of nations, things will become so complicated. Perplexity of nations, no way out. Not the UN negotiating. Think how starved the world is today for a leader. Someone to provide answers. All of this, see, perplexity, the no way out, is all of these things happening at one time in greater, greater frequency and intensity. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, pestilence, earthquake, all of that with Israel at the center, the tension over Jerusalem, terrorism, nuclear threat, nuclear proliferation. We're living in the middle of it. And we're worried about who the eagles cut today. The whole world's going to blow up. And I worry about who the eagles cut today. (laughs) Very interesting. Verse 26 says this. Because of this perplexity of nations, signs in the sun and the moon and the stars, the, the sea and the waves roaring, is that from a meteor striking? You know, they say that if a meteor a mile wide hit the Atlantic, that there would be tidal waves hundreds of feet tall all over the eastern seaboard, all over Europe, that they would go all the way around the world. Tsunamis, tidal waves, who knows? The waves roaring... It says, men's hearts failing them for fear, looking after those things which are coming on the earth. The only time that phrase is used in the Bible, men's hearts failing, it is the Greek word that means to stop breathing. That's failing. Men literally dropping dead, heart attacks, fear looking at the signs in the sun, the moon, the stars, the wars, the rumors of wars, the, the, the tidal waves, the things that are going on, men's hearts literally stopping for fear of those things that are coming upon the world. This sounds really depressing, doesn't it? This is really a bummer for some. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now, 
There's three ways we can look at this. The powers, which is the Greek word dunamis. And some like to, to right away point to nuclear war and say, well, dunamis is where we get dynamite. Heavens, uranium, where we get uranium, 235, of course. That the explosive power of uranium will be shaken is literally to be loosed. And what that's talking about is a nuclear exchange, nuclear war, men's hearts failing them for fear, looking at those things. I don't know. Maybe. Other people say it's, it's just talking about the natural, that, that if we get a, you know, some, somehow the solar system, the magnetic fields, it does talk about the earth wobbling to and fro like a drunken man, the powers of heavens being shaken, men's heart, that it's just something in the natural, in the, in the astronomical that will happen. Could be. Fine with me. Some say it's spiritual. That the powers, principalities and powers of the heavens shall be loosed. That there are fallen angels that have been bound since the flood. That God will once again loose in the last days when he brings judgment on the earth. Fine with me. You know why? Because I'm... In 28, that's where I'm at. Verse 27 says, Then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's speaking about the end of the age. We know that when Jesus comes, the prophets tell us the sun's going to refuse to shine, that the stars will look like they're falling from heaven, like untimely figs, that the moon will turn to blood, it'll turn red. And it tells us in Revelation chapter 19, then when Jesus returns in a cloud, it seems to me in a cloud of witness, the believers following him, the sun goes out, the moon refuses to shine, the stars go out, and the only visible light in the heavens is Jesus Christ coming through the heavens on a white horse with his vesture dipped in blood, with the armies of heaven and the angels following him. On his thigh and his vesture is written, Lord of lords, King of kings, the word of God. And that the only visible thing, because the first time they came, that he came, you see, they spit in his face. They ripped out his beard. They mocked him. They crucified him. Well, when he comes a second time, the Father in heaven will not allow the sun to have any glory, or the moon, or the stars. One light in the heavens. Jesus Lighting up the heavens as he comes, it says, with royal crowns sparkling upon his head, his vesture dipped in blood. Isaiah 63, who is this that cometh from Basra, that cometh from Edom with his vesture dipped in blood? The Lord. And it says he'll touch the Mount of Olives and it will split in half, north to the south, will make a big ravine that runs east and west. And he'll cross the valley of Kidron, which will be running with blood up to the horse's bridle. Maybe his horse. The blood of all nations. The Prince of Peace coming and crossing a river of human blood because men could not govern themselves. Entering into Jerusalem. It says Jerusalem is divided into three parts in the book of Revelation and elevated. Very interesting that article in Biblical Archaeological Review were under the east gate of Jerusalem, which is blocked up today. The Muslims blocked it up and put a cemetery in front of it because they knew it was holy to the Jews. 
When they were digging the cemetery, a Muslim worker fell through, and underneath that east gate is an east gate over 2,000 years old, intact, open, underneath of that gate. Maybe. As that city begins to elevate, we have... Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory, the Lord, mighty in battle? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lifted up, ye everlasting doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King, the Lord, the Lord of hosts? What a day! What a day! But look at the next verse. Very important to us. It says, When these things begin to come to pass, then look up, lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Very interesting passage. Because it divides itself From verse 31, it says, So likewise, when you see these things come to pass, come to completion, then know that the kingdom of God is nigh. So it's telling us two things here. To a certain group of people, when you see these things come to completion, then know that the kingdom of God is nigh. But to another group, it says, when these things literally are beginning. Just when you see the beginning of them, then lift up your heads because your redemption, which is a word used all the way through the New Testament for the believer, four times it speaks of the redemption of the body being caught up to be with the Lord. The other times it talks about our salvation. It is a believer's word. Study it through the New Testament. See for yourselves the places that it's used. Ten times, Luke 21, 28, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, chapter 8, verse 23, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Ephesians 1, 7, Ephesians 1, 14, Ephesians 4, 30, Colossians 1, 14, Hebrews 9, 15, and in Hebrews eleven thirty five, 35, it's translated deliverance. Every one of those places, except the last one in Hebrews, talks about the redemption of the believer. Here it says, and I love this verse, when you see these things are beginning, let me tell you something. They have begun. Look around the world. They have begun. Wars and rumors of wars. Famine like we have never seen. Pestilences, deadly infectious diseases. Earthquakes, like we've never seen. Persecution, like we've never seen. Deception. When you see these things beginning, then you who believe, you Christians, lift up your heads because your redemption draweth near is the same phrase we have in other places, which means is at hand. Here it's in the present tense. Is and has drawn near and stands at the door. When you see these things happening. Let me ask you a question. You say you believe in the second coming of Christ. 
You say you believe that Jesus could come at any moment. Is that being expressed through your life? Is there an urgency? It says in 1 John chapter 3, any man that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. It is a purifying hope in the church. It is a strengthening hope in the church. It speaks of eminence. There's no way that we can get rid of that. Romans chapter 13, and you don't have to turn. I'll read these passages to you. It says, the night is far spent. The day, here's our phrase, is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of God. It tells us this uh, in James. <clears throat> Excuse me. I've got some things trying to set up house in my throat. Be also patient, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord, same phrase, draweth, E-T-H in the King James, nigh, literally has drawn near and is imminent. Peter telling us the same thing in uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. What it says is, there is nothing preventing Jesus Christ from coming this evening. If you say you believe he can't come till the end of the tribulation, the Bible says, who is that wicked servant that says in his heart, the Lord delayeth his coming? It says what it produces is drinking and fist fighting and laxity. It says if you believe that Jesus Christ could come tonight, what it produces is purity. It's called the blessed hope of the church, not the depressing hope of the church. It's not, we're waiting till the end of the tribulation to get out of here. It says, men, treat your wives the way husbands, you know, treat your wives the way Christ treated the church. Well, you wives better hope that your husbands are pre-tribulationists. Because if they're post-tribulation, they can set you on fire and persecute you and just, you know, you know, tidal waves and all kinds of stuff. Treat your wives the way Christ treats the church. Nourishes it and cherishes it and cares for it. The Bible's clear. Christ is coming. Are we living like that? Do we think about that? Does it, you know, I examine my own heart. Does it bring to bear on my heart the pressures that it should bring to bear on me? That he could come at any time. When we witness to our friends and our relatives, so if we get some persecution, he'll give us the words that we should speak in that very hour. That's what it says. And he'll give us the unction. He'll give us the power. We should be seeking the Lord for a filling of his spirit. We are not looking for the Antichrist, but we see the signs. It tells us in 1 Thessalonians, you have no need that I write unto you in regards to the times and the seasons. You yourselves know that the coming of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And he says, you don't have any any more explanation about the times and the seasons. We see them around us. Christ is coming. You know, as a parent... What kind of hope could I have in this day? What kind of hope could I have for my grandchildren? Look at what's happening in our nation. I think we should pray for our president. We should pray for our policymakers. But what we should pray for, if we're going to be here, is a God-given outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a revival and an awakening and a great ingathering. 
Lord, if you're going to leave us here, fill us with your spirit and set us on fire. If you're not going to do that, then get us out of here. Why just be here in neutral? Why just be here in neutral? All of the signs are there. I believe the Christ is coming at any time. As I look at all these things happening in the world, I am not depressed. Because all of these things are prescribed. They're written on the prophetic menu. This evening, where is your hope? As you see nuclear proliferation, what does that mean to you? If you don't know Christ, what does that mean to you? You know, the difference between, one of the differences between the scripture and the Upanishads or the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or other religious writings in the world is the scripture is almost two-thirds prophecy. None of those other books lay out for us in great detail exactly what we're seeing today. The Bible is very clear. And in Isaiah 40, 41, 42, 43, God says, talk to your gods. Can they tell you what will happen before it comes to pass? I alone am your God and your Savior. Talk to your idols. Talk to your religious leaders. Can they tell you from the beginning what the end shall be? I alone, he says, the Lord can tell you the end from the beginning. The Bible's saying that it's a message to us from another domain, from God's kingdom. With all of the things necessary, we need to see for us to be on our toes. Examine your hearts tonight. If you're living in compromise, you're living in sin, you're taking drugs, you're calling yourself a Christian, you are self-deceived. How can you say you believe that Christ is coming and live deliberately in sin? But you can come to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He, like the father of the prodigal, will run to his returning children with his arms open to embrace them. He's done everything that's necessary. I'm going to have the musicians come. I want to challenge you that that don't know Jesus personally. You know, it's interesting. I remember even before I was saved, being interested in the book of Revelation. You know, before I was a Christian, I would have gone to see Armageddon right away, as soon as that came out. Because I had that morbid curiosity about the future. I wanted to know what Nostradamus said. I may have even been foolish enough to read some of the, the checkout stand prophets and See what they had to say. But that's when I was in darkness. That's before the Lord brought me into the light. The news is here. CNN hasn't got a clue. Here's the news right here. You can read today's news, tomorrow's news. You can read the good news. The good news is Jesus Christ is coming. When he comes, are you going with him? Or will you be left behind? Your choice. The Bible says that all we need to do is accept him as our savior. It's not a religion. It's not playing church. It's not Calvary Chapel. You can be from any denomination, any background, 
any religious background. The Bible says what's necessary is you need to come to him as a sinner and ask his forgiveness. He's not a great teacher. He's not a guru. He's a savior. That's why it's so offensive to talk about Jesus to friends and relatives. That's why he says, I'll give you the words. Because as soon as you say Jesus, people want to run. You can talk to them about dieting. You can talk to them about yoga. You can talk to them about martial arts. You can talk to them about vegetable juicers. You can talk to them about Emerald Lagasse. You can talk to them about anything you want. When you say Jesus, they're out of town. Isn't that interesting? You never hear anybody smash their hammer with a thumb and go, Harry Krishna. Oh, boo, duh. Isn't it interesting that it all aims at our Savior, Jesus? I encourage you, don't leave this building tonight. If you don't know tonight, if you died on the way home, where you spent eternity, you can know before you leave. And as we sing this last song, we want you to come and stand here and accept Christ as your Savior.